All right, now we can turn to our Bibles. Um, like I said, our, our main preaching text is from the book of Jonah, but I want to start in Second Chronicles to set some context. So if you turn with me to page 427 in your pew Bibles, we'll read verses 36 through 40 of Second Chronicles chapter 6. This is part of Solomon's prayer when he's dedicating the temple. And the Lord is soon to fall in fire into the Holy of Holies. But let's read verses 36 through 40, Second Chronicles 6. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, and if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely with wick- and wickedly. And if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they were carried captive and pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now we can turn to, chap- to chapter one of Jonah, the book of Jonah. <clears throat> so far in our sermons from Jonah, we've covered the first 16 verses of chapter one. But just to remind ourselves of some of the context, we'll start reading at verse 11 of chapter 1, and then read through the end of chapter 2. And then the preaching text will be starting at verse 17 of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. So Jonah chapter 1, starting at verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. 
I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I want to tell you a bit about the life of John Newton. Oh, that English guy who was a slave trader, then became a Christian and wrote Amazing Grace? Yes, that guy. But there's more to his story that I want to bring to light. John Newton was born in London in 1725. His father was rarely around because he was a shipmaster, and his Christian mother died when he was just six years old. He was sent to boarding school and to live with his father's second wife until at age 11, he sailed for six years with his father. He soon joined the British Royal Navy, but found he would rather be a merchant sailor than in the Navy. After being caught trying to desert the Navy, he received a flogging of eight dozen lashes in full view of his shipmates. Because of this humiliation, Newton considered murdering the captain of his ship and then committing suicide by jumping overboard. He was desperate. He eventually recovered mentally and was allowed to transfer to a slave ship headed for West Africa. But Newton did not get along with the crew of that ship either, so they left him with the local slave trader in Africa, who in turn made Newton one of his own slaves. He was abused and mistreated for three years, but was rescued by an English sea captain who was sent by Newton's father to search for him. But on the voyage back to England, their ship was caught in a severe storm, and they were in danger of sinking themselves. Newton cried out to the long-forgotten God of his mother, and the storm began to die. After this experience, Newton found himself reading the Bible and soon converted to Christianity. Knowing that John Newton ended up as a beloved hymnist and faithful gospel preacher, we can look back and see how God was pursuing him all throughout his life. Newton spent over 20 years of his life trying to ignore God, but when he found himself in the deepest of valleys and despairing of life itself, God moved him to finally cry out for mercy. God used years of trouble and humiliation to reach his chosen vessels. This is similar to what we're going to find happens to Jonah in this passage. Just like Newton, Jonah was one of God's chosen vessels in need of rescue. Last time, we left Jonah sinking in the sea after being thrown overboard. Earthly speaking, Jonah was a goner, and there was no hope for him. But God is not done with Jonah yet. He has a mission for him. We'll explore how God once again intervenes in Jonah's life under the theme of the merciful Lord resurrects his disobedient missionary. We'll again develop this theme in three ways. First, how Jonah was spared from death. Second, how he was moved to pray. And third, how Jonah was given new life. So let's turn now to drowning Jonah and see how he is spared from death. Once again, we find ourselves with familiar words at the beginning of our passage, and the Lord. No matter where Jonah is, 
in Israel, on a ship, or drowning in the sea, God is right there directing his surroundings. But this time, the Lord's actions are not stopping Jonah from fleeing, but stopping him from dying. The word for God's action that we have in our Bibles, appointed, is going to be a significant word in the rest of the book, especially in chapter 4. It's a word that really highlights God's role in this book. Nothing is happening by chance, but he is sovereignly orchestrating all these events in Jonah's life. Here God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah while he is sinking down in the sea. By using the word appoint, we are left with some uncertainty about how God was at work here. Did he create a new, unique creature that was capable of pulling off this task? Or did he just ensure that one of his existing sea creatures was in the right place at the right time to snatch up Jonah? I'm inclined to believe the latter, but in the end it doesn't really matter. God arranged for a creature of his making in the sea to swallow his disobedient servant and keep him from drowning. Now, if all the children's storybooks with titles like Jonah and the Great Fish are true, then we have finally been introduced to the second subject of the book itself, the fish. And if this fish were truly one of the main focuses of the book, then I should probably spend most of my time here in this first point talking about what kind of fish it probably was, if it's actually possible for a great fish to swallow a human being, and if a human can even survive for three days in the belly of the fish. But as we just reminded ourselves, the main subject is not Jonah, let alone the fish. It's God. The fish is only mentioned as a passing character that God appoints to accomplish his purposes for his missionary servant. In that light, we're going to give the fish as much attention as our text does and keep moving right along in verse 17. I've already said that God uses the fish to keep Jonah from drowning in the sea, but being swallowed by a fish isn't actually isn't our, a good idea of a life preserver, is it? God didn't miraculously transport Jonah to a nice sandy beach where he could breathe in the ocean air again. No, he miraculously placed a great fish near the boat to inhale Jonah into its dark, putrid belly. The belly of the fish is more comparable to a prison cell than a life raft. Just like a rebellious young man who consistently breaks the law is thrown into prison in hopes that some isolated time of reflection may lead to a change of heart and attitude, so God is using the belly of the fish as a prison for Jonah. Jonah has been going down this entire chapter, traveling down to Joppa, hiding himself down inside the ship, tossed overboard and sinking down in the sea, and now he continues his descent down into the belly of the fish. There is no chance of escape, so Jonah is alone with his thoughts, reflecting on his downward journey since he received the word of the Lord. So what was the original audience supposed to see in this? As I said many times, there are parallels between what is happening to Jonah and what the people of Israel have been through or will go through. Last time I mentioned that Jonah being thrown overboard by the sailors was paralleled by the nation of Judah being carried into captivity and Jerusalem being destroyed. Now we have Jonah being swallowed up to prevent his drowning, but is there a parallel of that for the exiled people? The answer to that is a definite yes. Keep in mind that the original audience for this book was the exiles of the southern kingdom of Judah. We can't be sure if they received this book before, during, or after their exile, 
but they received it as part of their canon of scripture at some point, very likely after their neighbors to the north, the nation of Israel, had been defeated by Assyria and exiled. When the northern kingdom was destroyed, the exiles of Israel were carried off to foreign lands, never to return to the promised land. But the people of Judah in the south had a different experience. They were thrown overboard, exiled from the land of Judah, but they were swallowed up into the Babylonian empire where they would be preserved until the time of their exile was complete. The prophet Jeremiah foretold it this way when he was prophesying concerning Babylon. In chapter 51, he is speaking for all Judah and says in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. The nation of Judah was swallowed up, but not consumed. Just like God used the belly of the fish to further discipline Jonah while keeping him alive, so too God used Babylon to chastise his chosen nation while keeping a remnant alive so that their mission wouldn't have to be abandoned. Now we turn to Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That language sounds very familiar because of what Jesus went through. And it's also where we get to see how Jesus related himself to Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, Jesus himself says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Sometimes the language of three days and three nights can cause people to trip up in their faith because Jesus was only in the grave for parts of three days and two nights. So what's going on with the language here? This is where the difference in culture and language rear their head. In our age, we tend to speak of days and nights more literally. Three days and three nights from now would be 72 hours in the future or Wednesday morning but not so for the people of Israel. For them, days and nights were kept together as single units of time. Therefore, if something started late in a day, they would talk about it as having occurred for a day and a night. Think of the days and nights language of the Bible as what you would mark off on a calendar. If we talk about something that starts today and goes on for three calendar days, then we would mark off Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday and the event could end at any hour on Tuesday and still be marked off as a day. So Jesus was in the tomb for likely less than 40 hours, hardly more than half of what we would consider three days and nights. But an understanding of language helps us realize this isn't a discrepancy. The same language is used for Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. So all we know is that his imprisonment covered parts of three calendar days. As Matthew records Jesus' reference to the sign of Jonah, It is clearly only referencing the death of Jonah and Jesus, whether figurative or actual. So how was Jonah a sign for Judah? Well, just like we talked about earlier, as disobedient Jonah was swallowed by the fish and figuratively buried inside it, so too the unfaithful people of God would be sentenced to die in exile. And Jesus draws a parallel between that and himself. Jesus too would die and be buried, although he was dying as an innocent man on behalf of all who would trust in him. 
At his, and his death would be a sign that all of the evil and adulterous generation that rejected him would die in judgment as well. This is a very sobering thought, but thankfully there's more to the story for both Jonah and for Jesus. We move on now into chapter 2 to see how Jonah was moved to pray. After all that has happened already in the book, it is starting, startling to realize that this is the first time one of God's chosen people prays to him. Throughout chapter 1, Jonah has been avoiding prayer. He did not pray as Moses and ask if he was really the right man for the job in preaching to Nineveh. He did not pray about the best destination from Joppa, and he did not pray to his almighty God when the captain woke him and told him to do so. Up to this point, the only prayer that has been made to the Lord was the prayer of pagan sailors asking to not be judged for murder if Jonah had actually been innocent. On one hand, the lack of prayer from Jonah is alarming. He's a prophet of God, after all. But on the other hand, his lack of prayer is expected, given what he's trying to do. If you're trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, why would you purposely speak to him and ask for his guidance? How often we do the same thing. Think about a sin in your life that you're trying to keep hidden from everybody, and I mean everybody around you. Even though you know that God knows about your sin, you're kind of hoping that he doesn't actually see it. In that case, praying to God for help with that sin would be admitting that you've been engaging in that sin. Putting it in words like that makes it sound so foolish, but I bet that everybody here can relate to it in some way or another. Brothers and sisters, let us not deceive ourselves as Jonah did. Our God is a forgiving God to those who look to him in faith for forgiveness of their sins. Jonah's prayer shows that he turned to God for his help, but only after descending to the deepest, darkest places he could go. The language of verses 2 and 6 reveal how closely Jonah brushed, brushed death while he was sinking in the sea. In verse 2, we have the belly of Sheol, and in verse 6, he mentions the land whose bars close upon me forever. Put these concepts together, and we have the typical gates of Sheol language of the Old Testament, that was referred to as the gates of Hades or the gates of hell in the New Testament. Jonah is describing death here. Some scholars take these verses to mean that Jonah literally died while sinking in the sea and God raised him back to life while he was in the belly of the fish. While not completely out of the question, he wouldn't be, after all, the first Old Testament character to be raised from death. This can be understood figuratively as well. As we just said a minute ago, when Jonah was thrown into the raging sea, he was as good as dead by earthly standards. Verse 7 seems to lend itself to this interpretation. Jonah's life was fainting away. Left alone, there is no question that Jonah would have drowned in the sea and died as the consequence of his own disobedience. But the attribute of God that Jonah wanted to deny for the people of Nineveh ended up being his only hope, God's mercy. God saw how much trouble his disobedient servant was in and rescued him so that he could complete his God-given task. God figuratively resurrected Jonah. He gave him a new lease on life. If you've read through the book of Psalms a few times, I'm sure that Jonah's prayer reminds you of the language of the Psalms. As many as 10 different Psalms are alluded to or referenced in this beautiful prayer of Jonah. What could this mean other than Jonah's heart had been filled with the language of the Psalms since his youth? When he finds himself moved to pray, it is God's very own words that flow out of his mouth. Oh, that the language of the Psalms would be written on our hearts as well, 
and we would pray this way. Most commentators note that the structure of this psalm reflects a psalm of thanksgiving. Jonah knows that he deserved to die for his covenant unfaithfulness, so he thanks God for the merciful salvation he provided. In the beginning of his prayer, Jonah reviews the justice he deserved. But by the end of verse 4, he is showing glimmers of hope. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah has confidence that he will see God's dwelling place again. Not because his past obedience outweighs his current disobedience, but solely because God is merciful. The imagery of the temple is significant in verses 4 and 7. Jonah is not just thinking about the beauty of the temple, but what was performed there. The temple was the place where blood was shed to atone for sins of God's people. By meditating on the temple, Jonah is admitting that he has sinned, but his merciful God has provided a way for those sins to be forgiven. Jonah only knew this atonement as the blood of animals, but we know that it was the blood of Christ that ultimately paid the price for Jonah's sin. Once again, we find a parallel of this prayer in the narrative of God's chosen people. Listen to these words from the prophet Daniel in chapter 9. In in verses 3 through 15 of the chapter, Daniel recounts the sins of his people and the just punishment they received. But the next four verses end his prayer in this way. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your holy city, Jerusalem your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Here we have another prayer based on God's mercy. Both Jonah and Daniel realize that judgment is not the end of the story for those who are chastised by a merciful God. May we cling to that promise as well and never fear what will become of us when we turn to the Lord in sorrow for our sins. God's anger is but for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. And for Jonah, we can figuratively say for two lifetimes, because as we'll see next, Jonah is given new life. Verse 8 in our text marks a shift in Jonah's prayer. No longer is Jonah highlighting God's mercy in light of his dire circumstances, but he is pivoting towards where salvation is to be found. He starts this off by highlighting the vanity of false gods. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. At a minimum, Jonah here recognizes that only the creator of the land and the sea could have rescued him from his watery grave. But could this also be a softening of Jonah's heart toward the people of Nineveh? Is he coming to grips with the fact that they have no hope of finding the steadfast love of the Lord as long as they trust in their vain idols? We will explore that question more in future sermons, but for now we should see that Jonah's prayer is leaving that possibility open. Verse 9 is the grand finale of Jonah's prayer, 
especially the last line, salvation belongs to the Lord. The most direct sense of this proclamation is that the Lord should be extolled because he is the sole savior of his people. But the word belongs indicates something more going on, for it is a word of possession. So not only is the Lord the sole provider of salvation, but he has authority over it. He is in charge of who is saved and who isn't. This phrase stands in stark contrast to Jonah's attitude in chapter 1, doesn't it? When God told Jonah to be a missionary to the Ninevites, he bailed out because he didn't think they were worthy of that message. He was acting as if he had authority over who heard God's call to repentance. Now he is outwardly proclaiming that it is the Lord who decides whom he will have mercy on. It is at this point that God again orchestrates events to get his missionary back on track. As Jonah finishes praying, the fish vomits him out onto the dry land. Jonah's resurrection is now complete, and he is able to resume his mission. Pause for a second. When I was talking about John Newton in the introduction, I left out some important information that I want to bring up now. Even though his conversion experience during the storm at sea happened in 1748, he later said that he didn't consider himself a Christian until much later. Why? Because for another six plus years, he continued to work as the captain of slave ships. Even though he was grateful to God for the mercy shown to him during the storm, it still took him years to see that all human beings were made in the image of God and deserving of the same mercy that he received. Eventually, he realized how much of a wretch he was, repented of his sin, and became a faithful preacher of the gospel. Is the same thing going to happen with Jonah? Is his heart truly soft towards God's sovereignty, or is he just grateful to have been delivered from death? Those are all questions that we will have to explore in the weeks to come. In our first point, we looked at Jeremiah chapter 51 and the comparison of Babylon being a monster that swallowed Judah as punishment for their disobedience. Ten verses later in the same chapter, we get imagery of them getting vomited out. And I will punish Bel in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. Just as Jonah was released from the belly of the whale when his time was complete, so too was Judah. God sent the Persians to punish Babylon and used them to send God's exiled people back to Jerusalem. But the same question that we asked of Jonah lay before the returned exiles. Were they truly changed at heart and ready to be witnesses to the nations? Or were they just relieved to be back in the promised land? Had they truly been humbled in exile? Or did they still see themselves as God's favored people? For both Jonah and the people of Judah, God heard the prayer of his exiled people and resurrected them to their position as his chosen vessels. That is why we read from Second Chronicles as one of our passages this morning. These are both fulfillments of Solomon's prayer from centuries earlier. Jonah and the exiled people had recognized their sin and, and humbled themselves before God, and God heard their prayers. We've talked a lot about God's sovereignty so far in chapters 1 and 2, so we need to take a moment to reflect on what God's display of sovereignty means for us. On one hand, we should feel a sense of awe and fear. There is nowhere that we can go to hide from God's sight. And no matter where we flee to, God is able to sovereignly force us back to where he would have us. But I want to quickly move to the other aspect, the one that we should find comfort in. 
How can our inability to escape from God be comforting? In this way, we never have to doubt that we are going to miss God's plan for our lives because he is always capable of sovereignly drawing us back to where we need to be. I want to encourage especially the young adults to cling to this truth. Trying to decide what career you should pursue and who you might marry feels extremely daunting from a human perspective. But take comfort that you can never accidentally get off track of God's plan for your life. Sometimes the path that God has laid out for us is winding and hard, but it's still the path he has chosen for you. God calls you to be faithful to his word, but you can trust him to lead you where he wants you to be. God's sovereignty is an important concept in this book, but that's not the only thing we need to see here in Jonah 2. Both Jonah and the people of Judah underwent a type of death to their unfaithfulness and were raised again to be faithful to God's missionary calling. And we are called to do the same things. The Apostle Paul says that we are to die to our old selves and put on the new self. Colossians 3 tells us that the old self is all of our sinful lusts and passions, sins that earn God's wrath for us. But verses 12 through 14 go on to describe the traits of the new self, saying, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What a beautiful list of godly characteristics. But let me ask you something. Are you able to live up to that list? Are you able to muster up enough compassion in your heart to be a witness of God's mercy to those you despise most? Let's be honest. We can't do it, can we? Every time we think we're making good progress in godly living, an old, we fall into an old sin again and are reminded of how far to holiness we come. But just as Jonah found hope by looking at God's holy temple, so can we. In his death on the cross, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of all of his people. Because his blood was shed, you and I can find forgiveness when we fall short of God's holy will. We already saw Jesus' burial in the tomb was a fulfillment of Jonah's burial in the fish. But as I said, thankfully there's more to both of their stories. Just as Jonah was resurrected and spit back out onto dry land, so too did Jesus burst out of the grave and rise as conqueror of death. Jesus' resurrection is proof that he has accomplished the transformation that we could not make on our own. We failed to die to ourselves and put on the new self, but Jesus did it perfectly and applies his righteousness to us. As long as we are on this earth, we will never fully defeat the sin in our hearts. But since we are united to Christ by his spirit, we are no longer slaves to the sin that used to reign in us. We can now begin to live lives that reflect God's holiness and have confidence that we are forgiven when we fall short. Dear congregation, do you believe all this? Do you by faith accept Jesus Christ as your perfect savior and look to him for your righteousness? If you don't, then hear this word of warning. God's mercy is not for you, and you will be left to sink in your sins all the way to your death. Those who trust in themselves have no hope for deliverance and salvation. But you need not despair completely, because today is still the day of salvation. 
Turn your eyes on the Lord and he will be faithful to forgive you. And for those of you who do trust in Christ as your only savior, I assure you that your sins are truly forgiven and encourage you to rest in God's goodness. Go out and serve the Lord with joy in your heart because of what he has done for you. You need not fear the eternal consequences of your sins because Christ bore that penalty on the cross. May we all confess with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, graciously grant that your word, which we have heard, may be inscribed inwardly on our hearts. As we receive your word with pure affection, may our hearts be filled with love and reverence for you. Cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness, diligently following your commandments. And may it please you to use us to lead those who are lost, wandering, and confused into the way of truth. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.